0: Well, good afternoon. Good to see everybody. Uh, thanks for coming. I never know why people... Uh, come on in, you bunch of stragglers from Tennessee. I never know if people come to, to humor me because they're familiar with me or if they're coming because of the uh, title to the class, but I hope to have some constructive uh, conversation about what it means to be in congregational life. Um, when I say conversation, I do mean conversation. I uh, am not an expert by any stretch, but I do think I've moved past the uh, the aw shucks kind of mentality, and I feel like I have something to uh, offer, primarily because of the season that I'm in. So I want to give you some context of where I'm coming from. Um, I am uh, 42 years old next Monday. I have four children, uh, the oldest of which just experienced graduate or senior Sunday this past Sunday. And when he came to me about six months ago and talking about colleges, he said, Dad, I think I want to go into ministry, which, you know, would make some parents proud. It made me panic because his mother is a PK. Um, All of his, uh, lots of his uncles are deeply involved in the church. And to be honest, I tried to talk him out of it because... Ministry is like a whitewater rafting trip, as opposed to a float trip. Who's been on a float trip? A float trip is when you have a river that, you know, flows uh, very easy and and lazily. And I've got an English prof in here. Is lazily is that helpful? Okay, I'm just making sure. Um, and you know, it's a lot of fun. It's it's carefree, but. If you've ever been on a whitewater rafting trip, that's vastly different. Uh whitewater rafting can be dangerous. You can actually die and it all depends on the type of guide that you have. And not only that, uh how well you work with the other folks in the boat and how you move your paddles and how you navigate the rocks and if you flip over how is the entire boat going to turn the boat back over. So if it's helpful, I want to give that as kind of a, of a metaphor for congregational life. When I say congregational life, I am a product, an a, uh, unashamed product of the Church of Christ. I have no interest in uh, veering away from my tribe and tradition at the moment. I am much more interested in redeeming our family name than doing away with it. Uh, I love what our tribe offers. I love what our tradition brings to the table And so I would like to hopefully give you a a perspective that I don't think is necessarily glass half full, but it is certainly more hopeful than it is cynical. Because if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of cynicism about our tribe. And there's a lot of reason to be cynical, frankly. Uh, We're not getting younger, which is a positive way of saying we're we're dying. But I, I do think that I've experienced some really healthy congregational ministry. I've also experienced some really unhealthy congregational ministry. Um, I was a youth minister for 10 years. I've been a preacher now for 10 years. So what I'm going to give you is a perspective from the 10 years of whitewater rafting versus the 10 years of my float trip, which I would characterize as student ministry. It was fun, it was great. I'm not trying to discount student ministry, but it is vastly different when you are the preacher or when you are the senior minister or the lead minister or whoever it is that talks on Sunday morning that people listen to. Um, It's just different. Um, When I came to Dallas 10 years ago, uh, it's going to be helpful to give you some context for the raft I was given. Because we all inherit uh, churches and the systems and the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I want to give you three, you know, D's because, well, we're preachers and I like alliteration. Okay, so, but this was the raft I was given. Uh, The first raft was the, the raft of unbelievable debt. And when I say unbelievable debt, I mean millions of dollars in debt for something that I did not create, for something that I did not envision, but for something that I was agreeing to pay for. Because one of the questions that was asked of me when I arrived in Dallas was, Pat, are you willing to take this on? And I wanted to see all of it. And uh, some of you, I think, can probably relate to the, the burden of debt. So when you go whitewater rafting and you get a raft, you think, well, man, this raft has a hole in it. We haven't even put it into the water yet. That's where I was coming from. Um, The next D I was dealing with was my raft was uh, fairly divided. And the church context that I entered into uh, was divided because the leadership had been um, very... uh, Well, let me put it this way. Uh, There was a rift that was created between the elders and the staff and the church, and nobody trusted each other. And there was a deep sense of, man, I am walking into a situation that does not feel unified at all. There were two campuses. There was one north of town. There was one south of town. And they told me that we were one church in two locations. But what I figured out in the first three, four months I was there is that we were two churches in two locations. Even though we like to say that we were one church in two locations. Um, The elder minister relationship was not healthy. Um, It was antagonistic. Uh, There was a lot of fear. To give you some indication of this, I asked the elders when I came what they were going to do to pastor their minister. And there was a deep sense of silence. And one of the uh, aged shepherds looked at me and said, Pat, the reason why we are so quiet is because we have never been asked that question and we don't know what to say. Okay. Then I began to talk to the ministry staff. And the ministry staff began to describe the The hurt and the turmoil of the miscommunication and then the church was kind of reeling from you know a a building campaign where they promised it would cost this much and then it ended up costing this much thus led to the debt thus led to the division which leads to my final D which is a wonderful beautiful Tennessee term they were dog tired now if you look up dog tired in the dictionary that's actually a, a legit uh, euphemism. Uh, dog tired meaning after I run my Great Dane with me in my neighborhood or rather a- after my Great Dane runs me in the neighborhood she collapses into the floor and is just looking to breathe. That's where this church was. Uh, they were dog tired. They they were tired of um, the division. They They were tired of not having a particular uh, healthy direction and so 10 years later i can say with great confidence which is different than arrogance i can say with confidence that the highland oaks church has a very clear vision um our polity is uh, very uh, distinct and also clear as far as the way we govern We have moved from two campuses to one campus. We have successfully grown our church from, um, you know, a large number of people to a medium-sized number of people. We have uh, clarified the elder minister relationship. We have navigated a very difficult theological conversation about women participating in the life of our church. And we haven't just navigated it. We're now living into the result of that conversation. And we are still engaging hard theological conversations. And I say all that because I believe that there are some realities that we are choosing to live into that I hope will be helpful to you and to your context regardless of where you are on your preferred theological path. Does that make sense? So I want to give you some idea of how we've navigated these uh, whitewater congregational rapids. And I want to begin with uh, taking you to an unlikely place, at least it was for me, in Mark chapter 14. And it's a familiar story of Jesus being anointed at Bethany. I want to read this text, and I'm not going to read all these texts, but I want to read this text and and give you an insight that I am ashamed to admit and confess uh, that I hadn't seen until just a few years ago. While Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the, the, the leper, and as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very costly ointment of nard. She broke open the jar and poured, poured the ointment on his head. Now, let me just step back and give you some context. If you know anything about the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is making a journey towards the cross. There's a significant turn in chapter eight when Jesus summons his disciples to carry their own cross. And they are in the midst of uh, the, the moments before the crucifixion and resurrection. <coughs> some who were there said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the, woman given to the, and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me, for you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. My confession is that I have preached this text a number of times from the perspective of who I assumed was in the room with Jesus. And who I assumed was in the room with Jesus, at the table with Jesus, were Pharisees, Sadducees, and disciples. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the ones who continued to grumble against Jesus of welcoming someone to the table that had no social right to be there. What I discovered and what I think our church discovered in in a macro way is that it wasn't the Pharisees or the religious leaders who were at the table with Jesus. Who was at the table with Jesus? The assumption that I'm going to make in which I would probably argue is that the disciples are the ones who are at the table with Jesus, and it is the disciples who are pushing against this woman coming and being at the table with Jesus. And the reason why that matters so much for us in our context is because we love to think that it's the Pharisees who aren't clearly seeing Jesus, but it's actually disciples who aren't seeing Jesus. Jesus the disciples didn't see this woman because they didn't see Jesus first so what we have had to do in our church context in our congregational life is choose to see Jesus first now I know that may sound trivial I know that may sound uh, simple But in our church, we really do try to allow Jesus to have the first and final word. There's a difference in reading Paul and seeing Jesus through the lens of Paul versus seeing Paul through the lens of Jesus. In other words, if we're going to call ourselves a church of Christ, then asking the question, what would Jesus do? Who would Jesus see? Might not be a bad question. And it might be a helpful place to start. Or it might be helpful to retrain our imaginations to think, okay, if we're going to be disciples, what would it look like if we were to see the people around us, the people within us, through the person and work of Jesus. So very practically, um, here's what this meant for me as as preacher and as, as a minister. One of the uh, sage uh, wisdom leaders at our church, who was an elder when I first got there, who retired as quickly as possible uh, when I got there, came up to me and asked, so what are you going to preach? Uh, in your first series and I said well I I was thinking of just kind of going through you know a gospel and he looked at me and he said I think that would be a really good idea what I didn't realize is the wisdom that he was giving me would sustain us through some very interesting waters that were class four and five rapids And every single year I've been there, I have preached through an entire gospel, whether it be thematically or chapter by chapter, from January until Easter for the last 10 years. Now that may seem simple, that may seem novel, but I can assure you that one of the things that has moved us into, I think, a healthier posture is we always come back to the gospels at the first of our year and what that's done is that has anchored us in the mission of God because you can't have a vision for what church ought to be if you don't have a an anchor in the mission of who God wants you to be does that make sense I heard lots of talk of, well, we need a vision statement. We need a vision statement. And and really what we discovered as we navigated these waters is we what we really needed was to come back to the mission of God as it's revealed in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth that has been now given to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, before I move any further, make sense? You see where I'm headed? So, uh, that's our conviction. Okay, we're going to allow... Uh, Jesus to, to shape how we read the Bible, how we see people, and I want to just give you some moves that, that our particular faith community has made. This should take probably about 15 to 20 minutes and then I would love to have some dialogue and conversation. Not so that I can uh, tell you what you ought to do, but maybe so that we could learn from each other. Uh, and I think these are, these are very significant moves that are all uh, doable in whatever context you're in. Uh, the first move that we made was we moved from membership to discipleship. Thank you for being patient with my handwriting. It's very good. Well, thanks. Appreciate that, Stephen. It's a lot better than both of my well, my brother and my dad who are both doctors. But anyway, um, when you move from membership to discipleship, it changes the conversation about who's in and who's out. Um, I am convinced personally that membership as the way we've defined membership in the churches of Christ uh, is not a very biblical thing. Um, You know, Paul talks a lot about being members of one another, but I'm not sure Paul ever talks about placing membership. I'm not sure Jesus did either, but Jesus certainly called disciples, and I think discipleship is a choice. It's a choice that you make, and we see that throughout the gospel narratives, don't we? If anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. And so moving from membership to discipleship really does create a sense of urgency and a sense of accountability, uh, not to the letters of Paul, but to the movement of Jesus foundationally. And I think that one of the things, if I can say this, that I'm most proud of about my church is that in moving from membership and discipleship, we have effectively (coughs) decreased our weekly giving. (coughs) Let me say that again. We have effectively (coughs) decreased our weekly giving. But now we have a much larger percentage of people giving than we did 10 years ago. What's interesting and what we didn't realize is that we had a very small number of disciples who were giving large amounts of money. And the rest of our church family was not really participating at all. It was like in the twenty or 30th percentile of members. Now we're in like the sixty or 70th percentile. And and once again, I'm not saying, wow, look at what we've done because we have successfully lowered our budget dramatically. But in my opinion, we have more disciples who who are eager to give. Now, are they giving as much? No. Do they need to give more? Absolutely. But when you move from membership to discipleship, guess what? The preacher's not scared of talking about giving because that's part of discipleship. The preacher is not scared... to to call people to some level of accountability. And the preacher shouldn't be scared to allow the shepherds and the ministry staff to lead the way as lead disciples. So I I think that's a significant shift that we have really tried to make. Um, Another thing that we've done, especially as leaders in our meetings, very practically, is we've moved from reading uh, the word to what's called dwelling in the word. I'm sure many of you are, are elders or are ministers. <clears throat> you start meetings with devotionals. Devotionals are a wonderful thing, um, especially when they can, you know, kind of be like the family prayer at night where would somebody please bless this food so we can get on with the business of eating. That's what I feel like devotionals are a lot of time. Can we just have a devotional so we can tell people we had a devotional and then go ahead and talk about what needs to be talked about? Dwelling in the Word, by the way, is not something that I came up with. I I completely stole this from a uh, professor at Luther Seminary called Pat Kiefert. And uh, Pat Kiefert talks about the importance of leaders dwelling in the Word, which means that you take a particular text of Scripture and you dwell in that text for a long time, amount of time a year or two years same text every month every week however often you meet and you dwell in that word and then you ask two questions you say what did you hear or what question do you have of the text but here's the kicker When you share with the group what you heard or what question you have, you have to share what you heard the person you were in conversation with. What they said. Let me repeat that in case you're confused. We moved from our meanings from a devotional to dwelling in the word and for example we would take Luke 10 uh, the commissioning of the whatever version you read, the 70 or the you know, 140 or whatever. And, and you read the text, and we read it through twice. We break up, and we take a good 45 minutes to an hour to talk and share with each other, what did you hear from this text? What question do you have of this text? And when you report back to the group, you have to share what you heard the other person say. And what that did is that began to train us To not only dwell in the word, but also appreciate and value others' perspective of the word. And it's really interesting, when you begin to dwell in the same text for months and months and months, what kind of new insights emerge and what least common denominators um, are there. That's been completely transformational uh, for us. Um, I'd love your feedback if you all have done something similar. Um, A third move that we've made, um, we've made a move from asking how can people get to use our church to how can the church be used for the people. Um, Use our church versus church for people. And what we've had to do is, we've really had to uh, steward the space that we've been given. Um, if you've ever been to Highland Oaks, uh, we have an enormous campus. Uh, Highland Oaks was a mega church building before mega churches were cool. Um, if you walk into our sanctuary, your first thought might be, wow, there's like 5,000 people who go here. When in reality, There's not 5,000 people who go there. Um, We have a balcony. We have a a big floor. We have a really big church building that happens to be very expensive to keep up. Um, And so what we had to do is instead of asking, you know, how can, can we convince people to come and come to our church? What if we existed for the sake of the people? And we asked the question uh, you know a few years after I arrived and it, it emerged from our leadership and the question was this if our church were to disappear from this neighborhood would anybody care That's a pretty significant question to ask that is pretty dangerous when you start meddling in some programs that you typically uh, are a part of uh, For example, And this is not a criticism of your church if you currently do this, but this is certainly a criticism of uh, our faith community. Um, We spent tens of thousands of dollars on a carnival around Halloween to attract people to our parking lot. Tens of thousands. And that was a story, a narrative that I heard when I arrived of how great that was until I began asking You know, how did the church continue to engage the people who came to this carnival? Which they couldn't give me any real good answers for. And when we began to shift from how can we bring people to our church building rather than how can we release the church to be for the people, what we began to discover is that the neighborhood really did need a carnival to attend because they had other carnivals to attend. What they really needed was help at the local elementary school. So we traveled down the street to an elementary school called Thurgood Marshall, which had 99% of their students from (coughs) single-parent homes and 100% on free or reduced lunches. (coughs) The turnover for teachers was unbelievable. And would you like to guess what the number one struggle they had with their students? (coughs) Reading and parent participation. We moved our fall festival carnival (coughs) to the parking lot of the elementary school. And we did trunk or treat at the elementary school in partnership with the teachers. Now this wasn't all our idea. (laughs) Guess whose idea it was? It was the teacher's idea. Would you all consider like coming here and so our families who happen to be primarily within walking distance of our school could they come and we were and then we began imagining well we could feed everybody hot dogs and we could do a truck or treat and then all of a sudden we started inviting the the fire department and the police department to show up so the, the families there could engage with the fire department and the police department in a friendly non-threatening way and then We did a book fair, and our church brought books so that the students, once they went through the trunks, they got to go inside and meet their teachers on a Saturday and receive free books to read. I wish that was our idea, but it wasn't. It was the idea of the people that we thought we should invite to come to our church rather than invite our church to be the church for the people. And now we, we have nine nonprofits officing out of our building. Uh, the largest cocaine's anonymous group in Dallas County meets at our building on Tuesday night, Thursday night, and Saturday night. And it is the most beautiful interruption of our elders' meetings on Tuesday night when we hear cheers from the Cocaines Anonymous group from somebody receiving their chip. what a great thing to be interrupted by. We have an organization called Pampered Lake Highlands, which was kicked out of a Methodist church down the street, and I'm sure for very practical reasons, but this lady has a vision for giving diapers to single unwed moms. Did you know you can't buy diapers with food stamps? Yeah, we didn't either. Until this mom came and told us that You can't buy diapers with food stamps. And we need a place to allow single moms to come and to do a six-week educational program so that we can hopefully allow them to get back on their feet. And the carrot on the stick is, if they come, they receive diapers every week. Pamper Lake Highlands. And the only reason we found out about that (laughs) is because we decided to ask the question, what would it be like if our church really existed for the sake of the neighborhood. Uh, When we sold our other campus, which is a long story in and of itself, we took a large portion of the money and built a playground in this green space right next to our church building. And the playground is open to the neighborhood. And now this green space is is occupied by by football teams and, and soccer teams and volleyball teams, and it's all self-managed. We have nothing to do with it. In fact, it's a little scary uh, how many people come and use our space. But you come up at any point during the week, and our parking lot is absolutely packed with people from the community who have chosen to use our space because they have been given permission to. It's a beautiful thing. Um, A fourth move that we've made is that we have moved from um, Telling our church to welcome people, telling our church to welcome, to listening to those we need to welcome. Um, I'm trying to think of how to say this in a way that won't um, lead me down a a huge rabbit trail. If you're familiar with the the name Larry James, uh, Larry James was the preacher at the Richardson East Church of Christ for several years and started an organization called um, uh, City Square there in Dallas. And now City Square has become kind of this epicenter for fighting uh, poverty and homelessness in Dallas. Um, Larry has given up on working with local churches because he's become so frustrated with their processes that he's basically quit. And now he raises millions of dollars every year and does unbelievable work, uh, especially with United Way and all kinds of organizations. But Larry said something to me uh, that just completely uh, rocked my world. And forgive that idiom. I know it's weird. But anyway, when I first got there, Larry came to me and he said, Pat, if I were to start City Square over again, I would choose your location. It's like, well, it's pretty pretty strong. Why is that? He said, because you're, you're positioned on the interstate geographically to be an absolute force for welcoming people on the margins and to end homelessness. You have six apartments, complexes across the street. I mean, there is so much opportunity here. And I said, well, what do you think I can do I mean, what do you think we should do? I mean, you work with churches all the time, Larry. What should we do? And this is what Larry told me. He said, Pat, why don't you ask them? What do you mean? He said, instead of telling them what they need, ask them what they need. And when you move from a posture of telling to asking, it changes the conversation. Um... I know several of you are, are are trying to navigate a conversation of how to be more inclusive with, with women. So let me just pick that, not showing you my hand or trying to convince you one way or the other, but one of the ways that we were able to navigate that conversation is we chose to listen rather than to tell. And what we did is we created Uh, environments that invited listening from one another rather than telling them what they should or should not believe. And when you begin listening to someone else's perspective and you begin listening about what it's like, I can still remember having a conversation with my dad. I'm the oldest of five, and it's myself, my brother, sister, brother, sister. Um, you can ask those in the room who know my family pretty strong male personalities in my family that might be the understatement of the century but my sister is a very strong female personality my oldest sister and my dad never did understand how she felt dehumanized when her brothers got to get up and talk on the Sunday night service, and she was told to be silent. And I'm not arguing or or trying to push you in a particular direction, but my dad never did understand that until he was able to listen to my sister say that. (laughs) And it's really interesting. When you start listening to people on the margins, when you start listening to people in your church, what they might say. Uh, The fifth move and the final move that we made um, which is uh, I want to be careful how to say this it's, it's moving from um, what we've done to what could we do uh, in other words there was a deep deep sense of nostalgia at our church when I first got there if we could just go back to fill in the blank. And as far as my research and as far as my reading goes, I think that is very dangerous language if you're going to grow and continue to be healthy as an organization. And when I say grow, I'm not talking specifically about growing in size of numbers. I'm thinking about deepening yourself. I don't think if the disciples in the Gospel of Acts focused on what they'd always done, we'd ever have Gentiles in the church. Because the Holy Spirit was making it clear about what the church could do or what the church could look like. And so what we had to do is we had to begin killing the sacred cows that were quenching the Spirit of God. And that's really hard to do when you're with a church who had just celebrated a 165-year anniversary and commemorated it with a book and who's got a tremendous legacy in the neighborhood in doing things a particular way. Even our neighborhood pantry program was still being run two years ago, not any different than the way it was run in 1985. That's not an exaggeration. But guess what? The neighborhood changed. (laughs) The needs changed. And instead of referring back to what we'd always done, we had to imagine, Okay, what could we do now, which led to these merging partnerships with these nonprofits that now use our space, that we are able to partner with now rather than trying to take this on ourselves. So, <laughs> we, we are nowhere close to where we ought to be or where we should be. But when I'm in conversations with other preachers who uh, come to, you know, either a conference or to lectures, and we share our common frustrations because I certainly have them myself. Uh, I think what we need more than anything else are tangible ways that we can help move forward. And I wanted to share just briefly kind of five moves that we've made that I feel like have been fueled by this conviction of seeing Jesus as disciples of Jesus. Okay, so I've gone for 40 minutes, which is almost twice as long as when I usually preach on Sunday morning. So that ought to be pretty good. Um, what questions, feedback, what would you like to explore further? Um, and what, what has this kind of sparked in your imagination? I would love to hear. Yeah? Where did the uh, resistance to these moves come from? <laughs> what did you do in response to this? That's a great question. Um, first of all, the resistance came when I first got there um, because people were just tired, so they left. And we really did. The first couple of years I was there was really, really hard on me as the lead minister because it was hard not to define how I was doing based on how many people were leaving. Uh, I mean, that's as about as confessional as I can be. I mean, people walked away, and these were people who had been there for 20, 30 years. And a lot of the resistance came from people who were unwilling to to make what I thought were moves that were informed by this conviction, rather than the conviction of, if we just go back to doing what we've always done, things will always be as good as they once were. Which, in my opinion, is not true. Nor is it helpful. So the resistance really came from the assumption that I was trying to tear down the nostalgia that had been built. And I was being disrespectful of the great heritage that I had been given. That's where the resistance came from. And the way I navigated that was not by myself. Um, I had some very, very caring uh, shepherds pastors and and sage voices in my life that walked alongside of me in some very intentional ways. And as the preacher, what I found out very quickly was that wasn't going to come about just because I wished it would. But I made a commitment to meeting with every single shepherd for either a, a coffee or a lunch or a breakfast pretty much every week I was there for the first three or four years. And what's emerged is that I'm really good friends with my elders. I go on vacation with my elders. I know that's weird, but, but I do. And in our polity model, I mean, I can get into that another time. It's very unique. But there is a lot of trust. And, I mean, I did, I did a doctorate of ministry at David Lipscomb. My entire doctoral project was on the elder-preacher relationship at the Highland Oaks Church of Christ And we crafted a rule of conduct around the way we were going to behave as a leadership team. That was informed by Paul's word of the Philippians. I can send that to you. If you get really tired one night, read that. You'll go to sleep instantly. But um, I thought it was helpful. So where we meet as an eldership, uh, we have our rule of conduct. It's on the wall. And what's great is that our shepherds continue to point to it as we navigate hard, difficult waters, as we meet resistance. Well, this is what we talked about, which is different than this is what Pat told us we had to do, because it was a shared journey. Good question.
1: Yes, sir. So when you're moving from membership to discipleship, how are you defining discipleship? It just sounds like higher commitment level, but where's your line?
0: That's a great question. And I'm going to give you my best answer in three words. I don't know. Um, Because it's still in process. Um, As far as where the lines are, um, on my worst days... (laughs) Uh, There are no lines. I mean, let's just all follow Jesus. What's the problem? Uh, On my better days, I I realized that there are lots of people in our church that need a a more healthy definition of discipleship. So what we've done, tell me your first name. Tim. Tim, I'm sorry. Where are you from, Tim? Uh, L.A. Awesome. I'm a big fan of L.A. I've got family here. Mm -hmm. Anyway is in our, um, in our vision statement that has grown from these core values, uh, you can ask anybody at the Highland Oaks Church for the last two years, we have said we are going to be... Uh, Highland Oaks will be a place for loving, growing, and sending disciples. And we say that every single week. So part of my job as preacher is to unpack what it means to love, grow, and send disciples from the gospel story from January to Easter, and then the rest of the year... I actually, we actually go through what that means. Uh, Our student ministry and our children's ministry uh, and our neighborhood ministry put out an email every single week, and their email begins with, this is how we are loving, growing, and sending disciples in our student ministry. Mm. So what we've had to do is we've had to change the way we talk about church to not, here's the upcoming activities, but here's how we are living, trying to live into loving, growing, and sending disciples. Now, what does that exactly look like? I don't know, but I like the way it sounds. And I, I think it's one of those things where the more we live into this discipleship movement, I think the more we're going to clearly see uh, what, what Jesus has called us to, to be. Um, let me give you a story I completely ripped off from another preacher, which are the best stories, by the way. Um, that there are people, and you'll appreciate this being out in California, there are people here that have pet sharks in aquariums. It's kind of the new rage out here in California. You build a big house, and you buy a shark. What I didn't realize is that sharks will not grow larger than the environment of which they are contained. So you have these multi-million dollar homes with shark tanks And the sharks only grow to three or four feet long, but God intended them to grow to be 12, 15, 20 feet long. Mm -hmm. But they can't grow because they're contained by a tank. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. We've got lots of members swimming in tanks who are not growing because that's their only vision for the way they're supposed to be in the world. Mm -hmm. Let's come and let's grow inside this aquarium for a certain couple of hours a week. But really, God designed them to be swimming out in the world. (laughs) That's where you grow. So anyway, I wish I'd come up with that story on my own. But that's been a really helpful analogy for folks that's allowed them to see, oh yeah, I have been swimming in a tank my whole life. So So I'd like to make a
1: comment. I, I, I really like the language that you use. Sure. I don't know, you said, and <laughs> <laughs> you said, we're, this is how we're trying to live it out. Yes. Because my background, I come from um, International Church of Christ. Of course. And discipleship was kind of a big thing. Hey,
0: we have an International Church of Christ worshiping in our space right now. Oh, really? Yeah, have on a a Sunday morning. morning. Sorry. We have a simultaneously. Uh, I got really excited. We, have, we, got a, we actually have a, an Iglesia church, a deaf church, our church and an international church, all worshiping at the same time on Sunday morning. Wow. It's so cool. Yes. So uh, Good use of space. Well, it is a good use of space. If I could just convince my son that the, the acapella worship is still valid. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> sanctuary. He came up to me last week and goes, Dad, this church over here in the fellowship hall, man, they were awesome. And I was like, yeah, but the preaching is way better over here, <laughs> <laughs> son. <Everybody laughs> anyway,
1: sorry. So, so it's just, I think, discipleship, when you take it to say, okay, <laughs> There's, yep. a, there's the line of out of church, in church, yes. is your disciple. That's where I think it's a little dangerous. You're yeah. very judgy yeah. when you say, oh, uh, you know, to be here, you must be a disciple. That's what we do it. But I think your yeah. language is better when you say, this is how we're trying to live like disciples. And it may not fit necessarily how you do, and, and that's OK.
0: I'm not sure it's necessarily better, but I have a deeper appreciation for discipleship in terms of very rigid accountability that can even feel um, snake-like.
1: Yeah.
0: Because, yeah, giving an interesting story, I was talking with uh, one of our uh, nonprofit leaders last week, and he was talking to me about some space and using it, and he goes to a church in Dallas called The Upper Room. I don't know how many of you have heard about the upper room, but he and his wife have been going for six, seven months. And I said, upper room? I said, man, he goes, yeah, it's crazy. He's like, over a course of a weekend, we have like three, 4,000 people come. But what's weird is that we only have like 400 members. I said, tell me more about that. It's what you're talking about. There is such a high, rigid level commitment process they only have 400 people that are willing to go there. But they have 3,000 who come and want to participate in it, right? So what I would like to do is to move people from saying, yeah, I'm a member of this church, to asking, okay, here's a community of people that I'm willing to make a journey of discipleship with. I can't do this alone. I'm not sure exactly what this is going to look like, but I know what's got to happen in the context of community. So family comes to us and says, I've got a gay son. Membership will say, Your son's not going to ever come here and be welcome. Discipleship says, How can we be in relationship with you so that we can figure out how we can navigate this together as a faith community? Because I think that's what disciples do. It's a pretty drastic example, but somebody else. When you talk about the reading the well dwelling the word stuff, like, I kind of got the sense that that, you, the, I heard you saying that was a, a leadership exercise. Yeah. Does that permeate through the rest of the church? At all? Um, it's beginning to. Okay. Um, and that's a really good question because I think whenever you create things um, in a church that feel like it's us and them, yeah. I'm not sure that's healthy. And I guess what. What I would like to say, because that's a really good question, Stephen, is that as a leadership, mm-hmm. we felt like in, in order to shepherd and pastor our church, we needed to be dwelling in the Word rather than just reading the Word. Mm-hmm. And so what we've done is some of our life groups have, have our small groups have kind of taken on this dwelling in the Word, and there's actually a small group of people who meet every week as a class who actually dwell in the word of the text of the sermon. So they come in, man, their antennas are way up. And what I would love, Stephen, back to your point, what I would love is for our church to begin experiencing dwelling in the word. Um, But, you know, we're not Quakers, as much as I wish we were. Well, um, hard, like once you, get, once you have people in your leadership that have experienced that, yes. and begin to value it, that it can, can begin to kind of them. Yeah, and what's interesting is that we're only on the, I mean, we've been doing this for six years now. We're only on our third Dwelling in the Word passage. And what's interesting is our conversation, even in our elder group, in, in our meetings, come back to convictions that have arisen from Dwelling in the Word. Mm-hmm. It's just really helpful. Good question. Yes, sir. Uh,
1: how do you define success?
0: How do I define success? Uh, my, my gut reaction to that question is we define success very carefully. Um, I can tell you how I want to define success. I want to define success by the number of people who are living a cruciform life. I want to define success by the number of people who who leave our assembly and are so uh, overwhelmed by the hope of a resurrected Jesus that they live a Holy Spirit life in whatever place of work they live into. Now that may be completely idealistic, but I can give you a list of 50 people who define success by how many people are sitting there on Sunday or uh, another list of people who define success by meeting our budget every week. But what we've tried to do is we've tried to redefine success in terms of discipleship rather than membership. Are you measuring that though? Uh, we are in some ways, yeah. I mean I gave you a statistic, right, earlier about our giving units. I, I think you can measure that in how many people. Um well, we are and we aren't. And that's part of the frustrating thing, right? How do you measure discipleship? Uh, there's all kinds of, of literature out there. Um, re- uh, who's the, it's a Reggie McNeil, a Missional Renaissance guy. I mean, Reggie McNeil, um, if you don't know Reggie McNeil, go, go read some of his stuff. He talks about different ways of measuring success for churches. I measure success by the number of young families that continue to come and say, oh, I think I want to raise my children here. I determine success by the number of nonprofits that we partner with. I determine success by how many people uh, from the margins who are coming to learn about Jesus. And, you know, every week, <laughs> this is the beautiful thing. I've got two shepherds that have started a class of, of misfits and marginalized people, and I didn't even ask them to start this class. That's what they wanted to do, it's kind of been their new passion. We've got like 20 or 30 people coming out every week that are coming from the, the prison system they're coming from the street and it is just an amazing mess um, we also partner with uh bowl's children's home and they <laughs> they actually left um, another church in the metroplex that was closer to their campus and now they drive further to come to our church because they feel more welcome and more a part of our church family rather than a project. I mean, I can get into that another time. To me, that's how I define success. That's a great question. And it's not defined success, it's how do you measure success. Um, And I'll go back to what I said initially, very careful. Um, Yes, sir. Uh, Another term that's used is health. Would you compare the church wellness, health, no. Well, I think that goes back to what I said at the, at the beginning. I, I would say, you know, at, at the risk of sounding like we have everything together, I think we're in a much healthier place than we were two years ago. But like I said, I have successfully led our church from two campuses to one. From uh, a lot of people to a medium sized amount of people, to a larger budget to a less than budget. But, I've also doubled our Mission Sunday contribution. Not I, we sorry I haven't done it but I mean it it is shameful what we were getting towards missions 10 years ago with the debt load that we were carrying shameful and it's shameful to have a building our size and it not be used for the sake of the neighborhood the hardest-working greatest asset on our staff is Dora Fuentes she is the liaison for the people who use our building and if it weren't for Dora I I wouldn't have a clue what was going on up there. I mean, because there are people in and out of our building all the time. And I think that can be a little overboard, but it's taken a lot of patience in our church, too. I mean, the first Sunday that that the International Church Christ, called the DFW Church, came into our building, and it was mass chaos. Our security team was like in DEFCON 4. (laughs) Who are these people? (laughs) Children's ministry was all up in arms, which they should have been. There was a lot of miscommunication. It was a mess but it's worth it. It really is. It's worth it. I mean, we had a completely different people group called the Chin Church meet in our building. Their kids ran amok. They were terrible. Tore stuff up. It was awesome. (laughs) Because you know what? That painting that sits in your classroom with 15 people in their 80s, if that gets broken in the name of Jesus, you know, I'm sorry, but it's just paint. That may sound harsh, but anyway. Yes, sir. Curious, Pat. Um, the move from telling to listening. Yes.
1: What, what kind of impact did you see? And I'm really curious about. So a lot of these things you're talking about, uh, partnering with others and all that, did that come from listening to the congregation, or and, and getting creative
0: and all that, or was that staff sort of driven, or yeah. how did that come about? That's a good question. So, um, and I've only got a couple minutes here. So if you come to the Highland Oaks Church, okay, there are three floors on the main building. Now, take a guess as to where the church offices are. Third floor. Fascinating, don't you think? So when I first came there, what I continued to hear was, well, the third floor won't let us do that. The third floor won't let us do this. The third floor, you can ask Mark Hadley. He worked there for, you know, several years. So what we've had to do is we've had to move ministry from the third floor back to the first floor. So not only have I effectively reduced our campuses from two to one, we also had 13 full-time ministers. Guess how many we have now? Five and a half. And that's a beautiful thing, I think. Not, not because we, we need more ministers, but because I feel like we have really worked hard to equip our first four people to discover the needs of the community around them. And so, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I really hope that we aren't predominantly a staff-led church, but we're really a church that says, okay, our staff is going to take discipleship seriously, and because we take discipleship seriously, we are going to recruit and empower others to walk alongside of us rather than lead from on high. And that's not easy. I really appreciate you coming. It really does mean a lot. Um, uh, uh, I'll put my email address up here. Please contact me. Uh, Let me know how I can be helpful. And uh, blessings as you continue to climb the stairs and hills of Malibu. So.